0: The Interchange is brought to you by Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest directly in solar energy projects across the U.S. Wonder Capital says you can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash gtm. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash gtm. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. This is the Interchange weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media in Boston. I'm GTM Editor in Chief Stephen Lacey. In San Francisco sits Shale Khan. He's the head of GTM Research and GTM Senior VP. And my co-host, Hey Shale. Hey, Stephen. Uh, let me ask you a question.
1: <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, usually I'm the one asking questions to start this off. Yeah, I have a question for you this time. Okay. Um, just imagine that I were to say the following about your writing. Um, the question is, how would you react? So if I told you that your analysis is, quote-unquote, riddled with errors, it's a, quote-unquote, appalling delusion, a, quote-unquote, unscientific fantasy, and, quote Quote, virtually every sentence is inaccurate, end quote. And finally, the scale of your error is staggering. Uh, I'd be. What would I, what would I tell it? What would you think about that? That's just the regular comment
0: board on GTM whenever I read an article.
1: <laughs> right, fair enough. <laughs> just
0: kidding. No, I'd be embarrassed. I'd be mortified. I, I don't know what I'd do. I mean, I'd revisit my entire assumption about what it is I was arguing.
1: Right. So those are all quotes um, from Various portions of this debate that's been going on online, on Twitter, in academic publishing, in the news over the past couple of weeks about 100% renewables, and specifically about this paper that was written by Christopher Clack and 21 co-authors in the Proceedings of National Academy of Science as a response to a paper by Professor Mark Jacobson from Stanford uh, in 2015, Sort of designing a scenario for 100% renewables. I was giving you one of those quotes was from the Clack response to the Jacobson response to the Clack response to the Jacobson paper. That was I'll say that again: the Clack response to the Jacobson response. To the Clack response to the Jacobson paper, that was all just the <laughs> actual uh, back and forth between the principles here. Then I gave you a quote from the National Review article about the Jacobson paper, one from the Forbes article about the Jacobson paper, um, one from the Jacobson response to the Clack response to the Jacobson paper.
0: It's a good thing that Twitter changed its algorithm and made conversations easier to follow because there were. A lot of conversations after this paper was released.
1: I mean, I got lost in a bunch of them. I was in London the week that this all came up, the week that the PNAS paper was published and every all the responses kept coming. So I was I had this benefit of being like off timing wise uh, just in time zones from everybody else. So I would like wake up in the morning and scroll through my Twitter and just find like dozens of different threads from different energy thinkers on Twitter responding to all of this. Yeah, so it was really unexpected, like how how fast this blew up and how, how much it enveloped the world of like energy wonks for a brief period of yeah,
0: time. Yeah, we caught wind um, that the researchers were going to be releasing this response to Jacobson's 100% renewable energy scenario. So we knew that this was coming. We wrote a story. Uh, our, our reporter, Julian Spector, wrote a great piece on the debate uh talked to the folks who wrote this response, talked to Jacobson and I think provided a comprehensive accounting of, of the debate. And we knew this was gonna blow up, but I don't think I understood how dramatically it was going to blow up. And I've never seen a record number of Twitter threads in one day before. Um, it was just incredible. And, and in fact, if you're kind of looking for the context of how people were reacting to this, we did a great Energy Gang episode. Jigger, Catherine, and I talked about this the week that that debate exploded. And then Shale and I decided... We wanted to go straight to the source, and we wanted to interview Professor Mark Jacobson. Uh, Of course, Jacobson is a a professor at Stanford University. He runs the atmospheric and energy program there and has been a big advocate of this 100% renewable energy path. And Christopher Clack, who is the lead author on that response paper, Uh, with 21 other authors. He's an energy modeling expert, formerly of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And these are two really important experts with very strong points of view and different ways of seeing the world. And so Shale and I said, let's go beyond the debate and go straight to the source and talk to both of these gentlemen. So in this episode, we're going to talk to Professor Jacobson. And uh, we just had a really long conversation with Mark. We talked about the criticisms Regarding his paper, we talked about the academic discourse itself. Uh, what stood out to you as some of the most important stuff that li- listeners should keep in mind, Shale?
1: So I think there's a few threads in here. One of them is this question of whether certain technologies uh, specifically, and we talk about these in some detail um, adding you know existing adding more instantaneous peak capacity by adding more turbines to existing hydro generators and also widespread underground thermal energy storage those are two among a few that ultimately are in the debate but those are the two that we talk the most about With Professor Jacobson, whether those are realistic scaled up to the levels that he assumed in the 2015 paper that is at issue here. So that's sort of one set of questions. We also dug in a little bit with him because he's made a bunch of comments about the motivations and potential conflicts of interest about the authors of the rebuttal paper. And I think you can probably catch when you get to that section, like both you and I are pretty skeptical that the authors of the rebuttal paper were motivated by a conflict of interest or are advocates for the alternative pathways any more so than Professor Jacobson is an advocate for his pathway. But, you know, he has a response to that and he he points to a paper that informs his thinking that he wrote in 2009 that, that I'm going to check out. So there's, you know, a mix of the sort of the content of this, how it's going to be used, um, and then also like what is going on in this debate. And why did this academic debate become so vitriolic in some cases?
0: Yeah. So the modeling aside, right, there's so much to dig into. The modeling aside, I'll tell you what I was unconvinced by and what I was sort of convinced by. I was unconvinced by the argument that these are people with an explicit agenda and are just pro-nuclear advocates looking to tear down Jacobson's work. I think he alluded to that a number of times, and I am very unconvinced by that because I know many, you know, both of us know many of the people who signed their names onto this paper or who who authored the paper, and it's just not the case. Um, What I was convinced by was Jacobson's argument that he's trying to develop a plan that not doesn't just focus on carbon emissions, that focuses on public health, on uh, grid resiliency, and sort of using a distributed framework to make the grid more secure and our energy system in general more secure. And I think if you're looking at those broader goals as a set, then there's a more compelling case for what Jacobson is arguing. We're not going to make a judgment on whether that is the best pathway. That's not what we're trying to do here. But he does make a compelling case that he's not just looking at carbon emissions. He's looking at all these other societal factors that are important in his plan. And that, to me, gets missed in this debate.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I wasn't entirely clear ahead of time. And perhaps this is my feeling for not reading closely enough that that he was taking a broader look at with, with additional public policy goals in mind. So I was glad that he clarified that. And before we go into the interview, let me also just uh, preempt some of the angry emails and tweets that I expect we're going to get regardless. Um, first of all, you know, we had an hour or a little less to chat with Professor Jacobson. There's so much in here, even just in the back and forth. Like I said, there's a response, a response to the response, and a response to that response. There's arguments in the press. There's there are too many things in here to get to, so we didn't get through all of the individual critiques or responses uh, about that paper. We also you know, didn't get into all the bigger picture questions about what it means and the way it's playing out in public policy. So, you know, we hope to do more as time goes on. We also are planning to have Christopher Clack, the lead author of of the response paper on this podcast as well, um, both to get his perspective and to ask him some questions in response to some of the things that that Professor Jacobson told us in this podcast. So we're gonna keep this conversation going. We do welcome feedback and thoughts from any of you. And I actually think it'd be interesting for us at some point to start off another episode um, by reading some of the things that you all have said to us about this, because I know there are just so many strong opinions about this in this energy wonk world. Uh, But forgive us for not covering everything in this podcast. So without further
0: preamble, Here is our conversation with Stanford professor Mark Jacobson, who has been a major um, advocate for this 100% renewable energy, wind, water, and solar scenario. We started the conversation off at the most basic level by asking Jacobson about the history of his research. And then we'll get into how it's evolved and the criticisms and the broader academic discourse.
2: Well, we should back up because, I mean, we've, published multiple papers on 100% clean renewable energy, starting in 2009, uh, and we did a world plan. In 2011, we did a more detailed world plan uh, in, that was published. In 2013, we did a New York State energy plan. Uh, in 2014, a California energy plan. In 2016, a Washington state plan. 2015, um, all 50 United States And And all
0: of those were based on 100% renewables?
2: Yeah, they're all based on 100% clean renewable energy in all energy sectors. And then we did a grid integration study in 2015, which is the subject that you just mentioned. But I should point out that among all these papers, and and by the way, we're publishing uh, next month in beginning of August, we're publishing a 139 country plan. Uh, that has 27 co-authors and among all our papers we have 85 plus co-authors and we've had over 35 peer reviewers. So we're t- going to be talking a lot about this one particular paper in PNES in 2015 that had four of our co-authors, but this is just one of multiple papers that has been peer reviewed and uh, evaluated and, re- and researched by over 85 researchers uh, over the last eight or nine years.
0: Okay, so the PNES paper, did that wrap together all these other scenarios that you had had modeled? What was different about this, and why is everyone paying attention to this one in particular when you had done this a few times with more localized markets?
2: Well, the one difference in the other papers were uh, what I'd call their really roadmaps to how different states or countries, like in the case of the U.S. or the world, could go to 100% clean renewable energy, and looking at the annual average Power demands. So not looking at the details of grid integration, whether the grid can can stay stable. Now, I want to point out here that all our plans are looking at all energy. So that's electricity, transportation, heating and cooling, industry, agriculture, forestry, fishing. And the idea of our plans is to electrify all energy sectors and then provide that electricity with clean renewable energy. And so we're not only Dealing with the current electricity sector and trying to keep the grid stable, but we're trying—we're talking about electrifying all the other energy sectors, and then keeping the grid stable once you have electricity for all energy sectors. And nobody had looked at this issue at all, uh, including nobody from the IEA or EIA or IPCC or any researcher researchers at NREL or NOAA or or anywhere. The the only studies that had been performed were studies that looked. At electricity only, the current electricity may be grown to 2030 uh, or just, or even further, but not converting other sectors or having converted maybe one other sector, uh, but not looking at all energy being completely electrified and providing that electricity with 100% clean, renewable wind, water, and solar. So that study in 2015 uh, examined the, the ability of whether it answered the question of whether the U.S. grid could stay stable uh if we converted all energy sectors to electricity and then provided that electricity with clean renewable energy so there had been no other study on that ever
1: and then just to clarify because we use the term grid integration a fair bit on this podcast when we're talking about things in the distribution grid uh and the need for to control voltage spikes and you know the need for black start and all those kinds of things when you when you talk about grid integration and whether the grid can r- remain stable at least in the context of this study, as I understand it, mostly what you mean is matching supply and demand at any given time. Yeah,
2: there are two. There are two definitions of stability. I should clarify. Um, one is really looking at the, yeah, the stability over, um, as we say, voltage spikes and trying to get you know, the actual, uh, making sure you get you're getting the right amount of current and, and voltage on the grid at this at the right time. Uh, the other is trying to match supply and demand on aggregate. Uh, and so we're really looking at the latter, which is matching supply with demand and storage. Well, so there's supply of energy, there's generation of energy, uh, there's the storage of energy, and then there's transmission, and then there's what we call demand response, which is really shifting the times of peak loads uh, by fi- with financial incentives. And so though we're looking at that the matching of the supply and the demand, rather than uh, looking at at the actual regulation of the transmission lines and trying to make sure the voltage stays stable.
0: And just so that everyone knows, describe the sets of technologies that you're using to model this 100% renewable system. So the primary energy is wind, water, and solar, but you're also talking about hydrogen pro- production and underground thermal storage. Just to, just outline the sets of technologies that you're modeling.
2: Yes. So, in terms of electric power generation, uh, we'd be using onshore and offshore wind, uh, photovoltaics on rooftops in commercial government buildings, on residential buildings, on carports, parking garages, Uh, uh, photovoltaics in power plants as well, uh, centralized power plants, uh, concentrated solar power with storage, Uh, geothermal power for electricity, and also geothermal for heat although in that 2015 study we didn't use geothermal for heat Uh, also small amounts of tidal and wave power and then hydroelectric power existing hydroelectric power in terms of the total annual energy use by hydroelectric so we did not increase any hydroelectric power and we haven't uh, in any of our studies uh, for the continental us and also for our 139 country studies that are coming out soon uh, we've not increased any Uh, annual average hydroelectric power. Then in terms of storage, we have three types of storage, well three areas of storage. There's electricity storage, heat storage, and cold storage. So for electricity storage, uh, we'll use concentrated solar power with storage, uh, pumped hydroelectric power, um, existing hydroelectric power dams, but in the 2015 study we wanted to increase the discharge rate from the hydro without changing the annual energy output, and also batteries And then for heat storage, uh, we would use uh, water for like hot water tanks and underground rocks to store heat seasonally, uh, like that's done in Okotoks, Canada. And for cold storage, we'd use ice and water, chilled water uh, in tanks. And then also hydrogen is a form of storage that we're using. And then we also have short and long distance transmission and distribution that we calculate for costs, we estimate the cost of, and we have demand response.
0: We're going to spend the first part of this interview talking about the specific debate about, around this technology set and your 100% renewable scenario. And you know, many of our listeners, I think, are very invested in this debate on either side. And so just a warning to them that we're not going to litigate this. We're not going to go through every point. We don't want to dwell on this too much because I think it's easy to get mired in every single point, because if you've paid attention to this debate, you know that there's a lot of back and forth here. Shale and I are really interested in the meaning of this. You know, the intentions of this study, what it says about academic discourse, what influence does this have on the way people talk about these issues um, and, and the way that public policy is formed. But first I think there are probably a few main criticisms of your paper that we should address head on, and then we can move into some of those bigger issues. The first deals with hydropower, which you model as sort of a backup generator and a way to balance the grid. And the researchers of this recent study led by Christopher Clack, contend that uh, you say we need about 15 times more hydro capacity than currently exists to support the renewable grid you've modeled. And um, it, it relies on instantaneous supply of hydro in order to supply those services. So what do you say to those who believe that you've grossly overstated the abilities of hydropower on this system.
2: Well, I would say that uh, your statement is not accurate in that we do not rely on 15 times. We we find that that's one option that if we uh, have a higher discharge rate, now I want to be very clear about this, that all we're talking about is increasing the discharge rate without increasing the annual average hydro output, so no dam size increases. So in other words... Instead of being able to discharge, uh, let's say um, 100 uh, megawatts in uh, 10 hours, 100 megawatts of hydro in 10 hours, uh, we could discharge a1,000 megawatts in one hour. So that's an equ- exact equivalent total amount of water that goes through the reservoir. Uh, but we're just having, we're just using because we want to meet these peaks in demand, we're saving the water. Instead of spreading the usage out over time, we're using it more in spikes. But I want to point out that this is just one option. In fact, we've just completed a set for 139 countries of the world. We've done grid integration studies where we have zero increase in the hydropower discharge rate. So the first distinction is that's one option that can work if, if it's a policy issue, of whether we want to increase uh, the discharge rate of hydro. Uh, because it, it is, it's there's a legitimate, the, the real question is not whether it can be done, it's a question of what what is the upper limit to which you can practically do averaged over all the dams in the U.S. How many turbines can you add to the outside of a dam? And, you know, you need pipes that can go over the dam or through the dam or around the dam to go through the turbines. Uh, so it's technically possible to add turbines to a dam to increase the discharge rate. In fact, it's done all the time to lots of Uh, non-powered dams in the U.S. that don't have any power, and they add a turbine to it, or some turbines to it. Uh, The question is, what's the upper limit? And that was not the question that we were criticized about, people were just, you know, we were attacked by us making an assumption that we can do this uh, without realizing, yes, it is technically possible to do. To add turbines to a dam, the real question is what is the upper limit. And that's a legitimate question to answer, but we don't. But I want to be clear that we do not rely on that assumption because we've done simulations now, and there some of them are posted online. You can see where there's zero additional turbines, so it's just one option.
1: So I want to dig into this a little bit more if we can, um, and spend some time on what this actually means. I think. So you're, th- there's also been some debate in this back and forth about terminology and what are we talking about in terms of average annual output as you're describing versus instantaneous output with the maximum peak capacity of all the hydropower would be. And so basically what you're saying is we wouldn't add any new dams. We wouldn't um, increase their size. What we would do is add a, a, really a lot, at least in the, the PNAS study, of new turbines, which would increase their peak uh generating capacity uh by an order of magnitude or more now you know i don't know about the rhetoric of the discourse and the debate back and forth but the the question of how what is the upper limit here like how much of this could we realistically add what are the knock-on effects of doing so you know what does it mean in terms of the environmental impacts in the areas the local impacts like those are questions one thinks you would need to grapple with in order to figure out whether the number in there, which results in a, a peak, uh, capacity, peak instantaneous capacity for hydropower of like 1300 gigawatts, um, which is a lot It's more than the total peak capacity of the entire system today. You know, I do think that's a reasonable question to have to ask prior to saying, this is a plausible scenario, right?
2: Um, it's a, well, any type of research where you're making a proposal, then obviously there's more, you know, anything that we're proposing something in the future, we have to evaluate every aspect of it. And it's gonna change the, what actually happens in the end will likely be different than what is proposed. We're just, we were saying that this was a technically possible and economic, although we I should acknowledge that we did omit the cost of additional turbines, but we did calculate that or estimate that uh, after the fact, At about three percent of the total energy cost, uh, which did not change our conclusions, but yeah, we have everything. Like we propose also a lot of wind power and a lot of solar, concentrated solar power, uh, and a lot of uh, utility-scale solar power. And each of those questions also have to be evaluated over time. Can you put in that much wind? Can you put in that much uh, utility solar PV? Um, We find that from a technical and economic point of view, because that's what we're—that's the lens we're looking at that we uh, looked at our study from a technical or economic view. There's not a limitation. It's a social and political question, whether or not, for example, I mean, there's no, you, You, I think you'll acknowledge that you can add 10 times as many turbines to a dam. There's no technical reason you can't do that. I mean, if we can put the dam there in the first place, why can't you just add more turbines? And then it comes to the question of the cost, whether you can actually uh, whether it's a good idea or not becomes a political issue and it you have to actually go to every single dam so we can't evaluate every single dam in the United States that has power right now and look downstream and say and then evaluate uh you know whether or not the community will accept you know a certain faster discharge rate for a shorter period of time and to actually evaluate what's the impact of that on the downstream flow and wh- whether that's acceptable or not whether it's acceptable is a political decision as you know in China I mean they put, for example, they just put transmission lines between Three Gorges Dan and Beijing, just piled them up and just send them right through and without, much, uh, you know, without any, any obstacle, uh, you know, because that's a centralized economy. So you can do things uh, if you really need to. The question is, the real question is, and I think that's the, where the framing is wrong here, is is that, the, is that a better solution than the alternative? Which is, you know, the alternative is, uh, well, actually we have alternatives too, which I think are probably easier to implement. So I don't want to, you know, criticize that too much. But the alternatives that are being proposed by these naysayers are let's put in more nuclear power. Let's put in more coal with carbon capture. Let's put in, uh, you know, know, other things that are maybe have other issues. I mean, if we wanted to power the world with nuclear, we would need 16,000 nuclear reactors. We have 400 in the world today. Um, Is it more difficult to put in hydropower turbines that don't take up any new land uh, than putting in a bunch of nuclear reactors that uh, have all sorts of weapons proliferation risk, meltdown risk, mining issues, waste issues, high costs on their own? Um, So I think the question is framed wrong. The question is really how difficult is that compared to the alternatives? But it is a legitimate question to ask, Can uh, is it possible, socially and politically possible, to implement all those hydropower turbines uh, but i think some of the it, there's been a lot of rhetoric about oh this will cause all sorts of flooding well it's not going to it may or may not depending on what the actual situation is downwind and how long you actually have to run the turbines for because uh, if you just have to run like <clears throat> in some cases some dams would only have to run for like one hour at a higher discharge rate but then they have you know much less flow for shorter periods of time.
0: Let's take a minute to talk about our sponsor, Wonder Capital. Thanks to Wonder for supporting the interchange. Wonder Capital's online investment platform allows you to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Earn up to 8.5% annually while also diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. In fact, investors like you financed 40 large-scale solar projects in 2016, offsetting the CO2 emissions from 2.8 million pounds of burned coal. We all know that coal is on its way out, and solar is on its way in, and you can capture that. You can begin investing with as little as a thousand bucks, and best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't charge any investor fees. To learn more, create an account for free at wondercapital.com/gtm. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com/gtm. Wonder Capital. Do well
1: and do good. So maybe this is this is right and it is technically possible and given the economics that you're modeling, economically possible to do this. And it sounds like even, you know, you're not saying this is, 100% hundred percent certainty that this is the right solution, the most plausible solution to get to a hundred percent renewables.
2: Exactly, exactly. It's not. I'm not even saying it's like the best solution. I'm but, just saying it's one solution, and that's our purpose to show that yeah, there is a solution out there. But right, just, okay. If that's not good, we can try to get an
1: even better one. Well, right. So, but then I'm curious. I mean, I think the reason that this is turned into, or at least one of the reasons, this is turned into such a a big public debate with so much, so it's so charged, is that. The way that your research and the study, in particular, has been utilized is then in policymaking, right? And it's and it's sort of used as well. Uh, it, it was found in this research that it is possible, and thus that is the direction we should take. This is what we should be going after. And I wonder yeah, well, whether you agree with that statement. framing.
2: Yeah, that statement is that absolutely incorrect. I mean, ours. We we've had we've published multiple seven or eight hundred percent renewable energy papers prior to this and policies were made based on those papers, not this paper.
1: But I even mean, in, in those studies,
2: studies. I the saw the California, California, you know, adopted a 50% renewable energy plan. And part of that's based on our California energy plan study, which doesn't discuss, uh, adding hydropower turbines to dams.
1: Right. But I guess my point is like, you know, it seems like you have this, uh, you're, you're. I, I think it makes perfect sense to say, all right, is there a plausible scenario in which you could do X? Right? Could we get to 100% renewables using only wind, water, and solar? What would it take to get there? And so you've modeled out uh, a way to get there, and you could debate about whether the modeling was perfect or not. But you've that's what you've done. Um, then you know you model out some other ways to get there. Why restrict yourself though? To wind, water, solar—like why not say all right—and then there's some additional other scenarios that include a wider array of technologies.
2: Well, now you're getting into the reason why we were attacked, because we were we're being attacked by people who have vested interest, largely by people who have vested interest in, uh, or not actually vested necessarily. I not I don't want to say they're all. There's some of them that have invested interest in terms of financial interest, but others have just advocacy interest and in, research interest in other energy technologies. And they just don't like the fact that we exclude nuclear power, that we exclude coal with carbon capture or fossil fuels with carbon capture and sequestration. and we exclude biofuels. And so these are the people who are attacking us, the people who are the strong advocates in these other energy sources. And we do it based, we exclude these because of, we've done it based on scientific results. And starting in 2009, Well, actually, starting my whole career, I've been evaluating energy technologies. I've been working in this 27 years, uh, developing models to examine the impacts of different energy technologies on uh, air pollution, climate, and human health, and evaluated biofuels in detail, evaluated the impacts of different energy technologies, and in 2009, uh, we looked at different... Uh, energy technologies, including nuclear power, coal with carbon capture, biofuels, wind, water, and solar, and did an evaluation. Well, and the result of the evaluation is that, while, for example, nuclear power was better than fossil fuels, uh, it had many issues that made it put it at a lower ranking than wind and water and solar power technologies. And you know, I can go into those details, but it's that was the conclusion of a scientific result. So that's why we started we for our energy plans. We then determined. Okay, we take, let's take the best technologies. We, you know, we have a limited amount of resources to, to fund a complete conversion of the energy infrastructure. Let's why focus on the Betamax when you have the VHS or your, <laughs> you know, this is. I just,
0: I mean, I, I guess, couldn't the same thing be said about you though? You know, someone could say, well, you know, now you just have vested interests in wind, water, and solar, so you're going to ignore all these other technologies. And, you know, I, I do take issue with the characterization of some of these other researchers who I have known and interacted with and have listened to them talk about your work and they don't feel like they're attacking you they're critiquing it they're going through a normal normal academic process and i just wonder if the same thing could be said about your interests in just promoting these technologies if we're going to say that about those researchers who are critiquing your scenario
2: well we can if you want to talk about specific people we can do that, but I would, I'm just, I go to the, I I look at this and I, first of all, I have zero financial interest in any energy technologies. I do not make any personal investments in any of the energy technologies. And I don't take any research grants from companies uh, that uh, uh, companies of any type. And, you know, you want to look at the people who are criticizing me. Uh, They're primarily in the nuclear, nuclear supporters. And many of them are advocates. Um, And, you know, we it, and there are also some who are carbon capture advocates. In fact, the people on this paper, you know, you can trace back, or can, a lot of the authors on this paper that were criticizing me have substantial interests of different types in either fossil fuels or nuclear power. I, I'll it's just say- a It's a fact. We can go through them one by one if you want, and we'll I'll give you some ideas about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't- I'm not. I'm not in agreement with you on the people on the authors of the paper. I don't know all of them. I do know some of them. I don't think that they're their vested interests in in nuclear, or carbon capture, or fossil fuels are driving their debate here. I also don't think that this is the venue to have that conversation. But I really don't think that that's I, that's certainly not the source of the criticism. I do think you know. To me, I guess the big thing here is like. Well, well you know,
2: no, no, I'm going to dispute that. That is okay. There are three. Okay, there are three authors of this 21 author paper that actually did any research on the paper. Okay. there are uh, Ken Caldera, uh, Chris Clack, and this uh, guy named Vist, who I don't, I'm not familiar with him. Ken Caldera, so there are three out of 21. The rest did no research on the paper. You can look on the paper itself. The paper lists what the contribution of each author is. 18 authors did zero research for the paper. They were just piled onto the paper They may have read it and edited it, but they didn't do any research. They admitted that. And of the three, Ken Caldera uh, is gave a talk in uh, in Paris that he criticized our paper and was promoting nuclear power along with three other people. Their whole point of their they gave had a press conference, and their whole point of their press conference was to talk about why we should use huge amounts of nuclear power and then i was in a debate with him where he was on the side of using nuclear power he admitted in that uh, debate he says i am not an energy expert and right, it's very, but ken, ken caldera is an atmospheric not,
0: scientist
2: he is an, but that's not an energy expert let's be very clear he's an i'm an atmospheric scientist too i had my phd in atmospheric science but i've been working on energy for the last 15 years as well and he he admitted in this he is not an energy expert Yet he put himself as a research author on a paper to criticize me, where he has previously criticized our work because if we don't include nuclear power, he's been a strong advocate for nuclear power. It's clear in the record that he is an advocate, and he's not an energy expert. He's admitted but, this. Himself. But what you seem
0: to be conflating but, is but, that <coughs> these are people who are somehow paid by the nuclear industry to no, attack. No, I do
2: not. I, I do not say that one bit. Okay, there's a difference between being paid, which is a shill, and I've never called them shills of the, of the industry, they're not shills, they have a conflict of interest in what they are saying. There's a difference between a conflict of interest and being a shill. Conflict but again, of interest as, is, when, is when you have, when you, uh, you work on a given topic, like, for example, Jim Sweeney was a co-author on that paper, and he uh, receives funding for consulting from ExxonMobil, um, from the American Petroleum Institute. It's right on his website. I mean, so he acknowledges it. He stated that you need, he stated in a in a talk, uh, we need fossil fuels to keep the economy rolling. Uh, so you ha- and then you have Jane Long, who is a nuclear, she's a, on sitting on the board, she was another co-author who piled herself on. Uh, she's sitting on the board of the Breakthrough Institute, which is a nuclear advocacy organization. Uh, then you have somebody else who's whose research is in, in carbon capture, and then you have somebody else who's in the earth sciences uh, department that's at Earth Sciences School at Stanford, and uh, he receives funding. In uh, the School of Earth Sciences, receives funding for uh, for everybody gets two PhD students in that department, uh, funded by the natural gas industry. And so you have people with financial conflicts of interest of what they're saying, and they don't disclose fully their their uh, conflicts of interest. That is different from being a shill. I do not think any of them are actually being paid, but I think that they're they're biased by you know kind of what they. Uh, what they strongly believe in or the research that is necessary to continue. I
0: think what bothers but uh, I, I think we should probably get beyond this, but there's one thing that bothers me about this argument and this line of thinking, and that is that you could make that same argument for everyone who supports all these different kinds of plans. So if you look at the right, organizations. That's not true. That I do not, as I said, I do not. Let's hold on. Let's, well, let's, the, the organizations that have supported 100% renewable energy are organizations like Greenpeace, environmental groups that have been specifically anti-nuclear or anti-gas. And so one on the other side of the debate could say that these are organizations with a very specific set of interests and a set of choice technologies that they think are the best and are therefore supporting work that supports their own thesis. And so like just because someone believes that and has modeled nuclear in their own scenario and believes that perhaps it could be a part of the mix, um, that doesn't Negate their entire argument and critique, right?
2: Well, I, first of all, I agree that yeah, groups like Greenpeace and other advocacy organizations, sure, that's they, they don't they admit that this is what they're they're supporting, they're advocates for it, and I don't have a problem with that. But they're not the ones writing a paper criticizing me, and so this is the problem when you have scientists under the who, uh, you know, under the guise of being just you know, re, you know, researchers who are just not interested in actually. Um, or not, who don't have a conflict of interest, they're pretending as if they don't have a conflict of interest when they do. And, you know, am not saying all of them do. Okay, so not all of them went off, but there are a lot of them who do. And that's why they're on the paper. That's what, you know, because they, they strongly want to criticize this because they're, uh, they want to get their technology promoted more. And this is just a fact. It's not, a, it's not you know, and I don't I think it should be acknowledged. It's not, you know, I, and again, I'm not saying everybody on that paper has that, and everybody has, a, there's a different reason each person was on that paper. But it's very clear from the record that uh, several of them do have conflicts of interest of different types.
1: I think let's, let's see if we can move on from, I you know, I think we're just not going to get aligned on this point, but it, it doesn't, it shouldn't impact the overall conversation because, you know, even in your responses, though, you've, you've made this point a bunch of times about who the authors of the paper are. You've also engaged with their responses. Um, yeah, so no, to your like, credit, I, I like just
2: as talk about the actual facts yeah. on this then.
1: So in, let's yeah. do that.
0: Yeah. Again. Do you want to go to the underground storage piece? I think that's another issue that has been um, talked about back and forth. And, and your paper puts a lot of stock in underground thermal storage for heating, chilled water, and ice for cooling, as you said. Um, the detractors said that this is unrealistic, um, and, and really the technology that you're outlining in thermal storage has been developed in a, in a select few pilot projects. So what's your, criticism, your, what's your response to the criticism about that storage technology that it's relying on a mostly unproven, complicated set of technologies?
2: It's first of all, there. It's there. The underground part of it is rocks underground, basically. So there, you you can take a field, and it could be a park. The one like I was in Okotoks, Canada, which is one hour south of Calgary, where they have uh, fifty-two homes uh, that have been there since that were built in two thousand five, and each of the fifty-two homes on the garages there have a solar collector uh, that. Instead of water, there's a glycol solution inside the solar collector. During the summer, when the days are long, uh, the sunlight heats up the glycol solution. The heat then gets transferred, well, the solution gets transferred, and the heat gets transferred uh, through pipes to a centralized building, small building. Uh, The building, in the building, the heat from the glycol solution gets transferred to water in pipes. Uh, The water in the pipes, the heated water, then gets uh, piped underground. Uh, There was a field, which is now a a park, a central park in this little community that's surrounded by homes and kids play on this field. And I stood on it. I couldn't even tell there was a storage facility underneath me. But it was excavated uh, down to 30 meters and filled with rocks and then the pipes for the water. Uh, The water then goes down into the rocks, heats the rocks up to 80 degrees Celsius. The rocks are insulated around them. And then the field was the rocks were covered up with dirt, and then grass is grown on it, so it's a play field. And that heat is stored until winter time when snow is on the ground. And then the whole system is run in reverse. and that heat from the, the seasonal heat storage provides 100% percent of the winter time heating for these 52 homes. And the cost of the actual storage portion of that is less than a dollar a kilowatt hour, which compares with around $300 a kilowatt hour of storage. Uh, the efficiency is from summer to winter, I mean, from the collected heat back to uh, the heat that's transferred back to the homes is around, I think it was 58%, which is not high, but it's so cheap uh, that, uh, you, you know, and you're, se- you're storing it seasonally, so it's over a long period of time uh, that, that you can provide plenty of the heat that you need. And uh, so, so this is, a, this is a, an existing technology, it's proven. And there are many systems around the world like this. They're not like like I shouldn't say there are like hundreds, but they're you know up to a dozen or so. And the so it, and it's cheap. So it's definitely a mature technology. It can be done. It's not under buildings. It, it's, it's like a district centralized district heating system. 60% of Denmark is under district heating, except they use water tanks instead of rocks underground. So technically, why not? You can do it. But again, you don't need to do all this. This is again one option. And so we're not saying this is the only way to do it. You can also use more heat pumps and electricity.
1: I just wonder, you know, this, it strikes me. It's a similar kind of this, this uh, debate about the underground thermal energy storage is a similar one to the hydropower one, which is like, you're making the case, like, look, this is plausible. This is, this is possible. This is technically possible. And based on your calculations, economically possible. And I think if you kind of read between the lines on the response, it's like, well, maybe it's technically possible, but it's, uh, it's sort of unproven at this. It's wildly unproven at the scale that you're talking about building in here, and both of those things seem to me like they can be true simultaneously. But it's just sort of how the framing of what what is how the the research is has been utilized and thought about that maybe this starts to raise all these these questions and issues. Like if it's true that the underground thermal energy storage could work and we could do it at the scale that you're talking about, and the hydropower and all the other components of this, I mean, you'd have to admit like it's a, you know, you've got it, you're it's a it's a narrow window you're looking at. It's like hitting a hole in one, like all these things have to work at this scale at these prices. And so is this the only scenario? No, obviously not. And you would say the same. But, uh, but it does require a lot of things to go right for this to be the way that we should, like, restrict ourselves.
2: Well, look when you're writing a paper yeah well when you're writing a paper you have to pick you know you can pick multiple scenarios you can or you can pick one scenario but every i mean the amount of work that goes into you know even one scenario is humongous uh, and so it's not like you know if we were so nimble that we could just do like 100 different scenarios that would be great uh, we have to pick one and then we're trying to make a point that, okay, there is one scenario that's possible. There are others too, because we did a lot of sensitivity tests with these scenarios as well. Um, but, you know, you're saying that it's, you have to thread a needle uh, to actually make this work, but actually, but I'm not trying to be, you know, facetious or anything, but you're just kind of guessing that you don't really know that. I mean, we don't, none of us know what the, what's possible in the future. Um, and it really depends on what we decide to do collectively. Sure, if, no, if nobody agrees to do it, nothing's going to happen. But let's say you know, 60, 70, 80% of the people decide, yeah, we want to do this, then it suddenly becomes possible. You know, things become possible when people want to do it. And so our job is to say, say well, you know, if we could replicate this system, is, it, is, this, is this a solution? And so, you know, we think, yeah, if we could replicate the system, if you could replicate the hydro system, yes, that would solve the problem. Now, is that the best way to do it? We do not say that it is. We don't say it's the lowest cost. In fact, we acknowledge this is not necessarily the lowest cost solution. Uh, we don't say this is the best solution. This is just one of several possible solutions to and our point is to say this is to say whether this is possible or not. And we're being criticized by, you know, by people saying, "Well, we're not, you know, you, you can't prove that that'll work on that large scale." Well, to be fair, you can't prove that it won't work. Uh, we we're suggesting that, uh, you know, these numbers suggest that it could work if you could implement these technologies. And so maybe we're talking about we're kind of talking across each other because you you know, some people are looking at based on the past. What could be done based on past history versus what can be done uh, if, if people decide they want to do it.
0: This is a, actually a really good point, because I think when you start to get into these really sort of high decarbonization or high renewable energy scenarios, there is a little bit of talking past each other because um, you're, you know, you're potentially threading the needle for a bunch of different technologies. So I've channeled a lot of the arguments of the detractors in this interview but I think largely when you look at what detractors of your scenario are saying, um, many of them are saying, "Hey, CCS and nuclear, in particular, when you start getting into the eighty percent decarbonization range, they are very economic. They can they model out. Um, but when you look at how they're being implemented, right? Like, go tell that to ratepayers in." Georgia, you know, Southern Company ratepayers who are paying for the Vogel nuclear power plant or the Kemper CCS power plant. And so, in theory, when you look at this deep decarbonization model, those those projects can pencil out depending on how you're modeling well, okay, them. But, I, but they're also, you, you also run into the same sort of siting challenges, cost overrun challenges, um, potential you know, lack of appetite to pay for those things in the short term. So you know, we are talking about many of the same issues no matter what technologies you're modeling when you get to these really incredible 100% scenarios.
2: No, I, I disagree with what you just said because, first of all, nobody has looked at a high penetration scenario with nuclear with 100% across all energy sectors. You're talking about studies that have looked only at the electricity sector and that sector is only 20% of all energy. So 80% of 20% is 16%. So you're talking about studies that have examined, that have examined 16% of all energy, not near 100%. So there's no study that has ever been done that has shown that Uh, nuclear at high penetrations, like close to 100% uh, decarbonization with a grid integration study has ever been done. And I I challenge you to even name one study where they've looked at 100% decarbonization and did a grid integration study with that and included nuclear. I'm not saying it can't be done, but I'm just saying there has been no study, and people have mischaracterized previous studies claiming that they've looked at that high penetration uh, of decarbonization can you just clarify
1: for me there's nothing behind this question i have no idea um why would it so you're 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 looking at the entire sort of energy sector largely by electrifying everything that isn't currently electrified so it presumably increases in a big or it results in a big increase in power demand assuming that they were you know a study were run that that looked at nuclear as well doing the same thing just electrifying everything why would that make a Difference uh, relative to a scenario that just has just looks at the electricity sector on its own.
2: Well, you need to there's because there's a certain portion that's heat and there's there you know there's a certain portion of heat that goes with it and so you well first of all when you electrify everything you reduce your power demand on we estimate on the order of forty percent uh, due to the efficiency of electricity over combustion and due to the fact that you don't have to... I mean
1: you, you reduce your energy demand, both not pa- your power demand?
2: Both power demand. Well, we, we used to talk about power. Power is just uh, energy uh, divided by time. Right? I You so, mean, right, So n-
1: not like the colloquial power as electricity. I see.
2: Yeah, so it's, um, both power and energy demand go down by about 40% uh, due to the fact that you no longer need to mine, transport, and refine fossil fuels, and that's around 13% of all energy worldwide and the efficiency of electricity over combustion, which is around 23% uh, reduction of power demand. And then you can get additional power demand reduction due to additional end use energy efficiency improvements. So first of all, there haven't been studies that have accounted for that reduction of power demand when you electrify all energy sectors, these, of these decarbonization studies. And, and then second, then there have been no studies that have that have, have been taken that uh, resulting electricity uh, looked at different mixes and then tried to power, let's say, the whole U.S. or a whole country. Uh, and this is, but there have been studies that have claimed that just by you know doing not with doing grid integration studies that you can decarbonize and use nuclear power uh, for the rest. But they didn't do a grid integration study, and you're you know, you're asking a question about well, whether whether or not if you just model the electricity sector, if you can just apply it to all energy. Well, that depends. When they're, if you're actually only looking at, let's say, the electricity sector as it currently stands, which is 20% of all energy, then you have a lot fewer wind turbines, and you have a lot fewer solar panels, so you haven't actually evaluated where you're going to place all these turbines and solar panels if you needed to go up by a factor of, of three, let's say and which we have done um, we actually account for when we model the winds we account for the competition among wind turbines for available kinetic energy which no other study has ever done and because that you get a reduction of power of power supply by wind for example when you actually uh, account for that competition of the different wind turbines and so a lot of those studies they overestimate their wind power uh, as a result but since they haven't simulated 100% renewable energy, they do not They not only don't actually have the right, right number of turbines to actually simulate and to get the wind profiles from, uh, they don't account for the reduction of the power demand. There's a lot of details that aren't accounted for when you're only doing a smaller system, is my point. Um, but you know, the fact is they haven't done it, so how can they make this claim? How can they make the claim that uh, if you go to... You can get eighty percent, you know, easily, but you need nuclear for the remaining twenty percent. They have never, they can't prove that. They've never done a study on that. But you know, the, it, it's also contrary to common sense because several studies have looked at when you do have high penetrations of nuclear. In fact, the IPCC says it, it very, it says very clearly. I, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says that when you get high penetrations of renewable, nuclear, and coal with carbon capture are not complementary anymore. Low penetrations, they are complementary to some degree because you have base load, but base load becomes a liability when you have high penetrations of renewables. And so it it doesn't even make common sense why you'd use more nuclear or coal or carbon capture at high penetrations.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the argument that Folks who are looking at nuclear might make, for example, is like okay, next generation nuclear reactor is t- being designed to be a lot more flexible so that it can load follow, for example, and actually m- mitigate peaks and valleys in solar and wind generation. Now, I don't, I haven't, I have no idea whether that's plausible or whether it's going to happen, whether it works at scale. I think it just all comes back to like it. It seems like it's a, it's a tool in the toolbox. Um, why restrict the toolbox?
2: Well, okay, so I'm going to dispute that. <laughs> we need to replace 80% of energy by 2030 and 100% by 2050 to avoid 1.5 degrees global warming. So 13 years, within 13 years, we need to, to eliminate 80% of all emissions. That's transition, 80% of all the energy. It takes one nuclear reactor 10 to 19 years between planning and operation and the construction time's on the order of four to six years of that, the rest is planning and operation, planning time and financing time, site permitting time, et cetera. So, you know, just to get one conventional nuclear reactor up, it takes 10 to 19 years. So it take an average, let's say, of 13 years. That's 2030, even if you planned them all today. So, it's impossible. It is absolutely impossible to decarbonize 80% if we decide we want to go nuclear right now and by 2030. Whereas it is possible, doesn't mean it'll happen, at least with wind, water, and solar, you know, two to five years is the average time for new solar, new wind plants. So it is possible with that. Now you're talking about a technology, you know, these small-scale nuclear reactors don't even exist right now at any commercial scale that we know of. And and so that that doesn't we only deal with existing technologies to the extent, well, I shouldn't say only, but for the bulk of it, because the only ones that we do, the only technologies that we're not uh, dealing with that are not existing are uh, long distance aircraft, and long distance ships, where the technologies do exist to, to change them, but they haven't been transformed. So for example, hydrogen fuel cell and plus battery hybrid ships and aircraft, and there are hydrogen fuel cell aircraft now rolling, now in the air, but not long distance. But aside from those, which only represent a few percent of the total energy, you know we're relying on existing technologies that we can implement today and we are we specifically do not want to guess that some technology might be available and then so do nothing until that technology comes around and and i think you agree because you know people have talking about all sorts of technologies for decades like you know ethanol like cellulosic ethanol they started talking about it in 1981 and doing research on it. and even today there's you know virtually no cellulosic ethanol factories around that are sure or ethanol. like
1: the Yeah, for a while I was really into the idea of those solar updraft towers. I don't know if you ever heard about those, right? That was the Mission Solar ones. It was supposed to build a tower that was like the tallest constructed uh, anything in the world, but it would. I think there are still some
0: investors out there losing money. Yeah, in Australia, right? The main region.
1: No, I mean, I totally, I totally take that point. I I think, you know, to me, the distinction between what is commercially available today and what is not, I don't know, it's a little bit murky. Like an example is you, you uh, have a lot of concentrating solar power, um, with phase change materials in your modeling. And you've made the point that it wouldn't have to be phase change materials. You could do molten salt for storage too. I mean, I, I've spent the past decade, like analyzing the solar market and I'll just tell you, like, from my perspective, concentrating solar power is a, it's commercially available. Certainly. Um, it's also such a steep climb to make that economic, to get it up to scale at this point. And even the projects that we've got, like Ivanpah, you know, the big flagship projects have, have had like really serious production issues and uptime issues. So I'm and not saying it's impossible, but like, well, yeah, but well, I mean, it's well, commercialized technology that to me, I wouldn't like rely upon if I'm trying to, well, to let's, move let's as say, fast let, as you're suggesting.
2: I, no, I, I agree that you could be cautious, but I should point out with concentrated solar that there's a lot. Of- better things out there right now than Ivanpah. And for example, I mean, just yesterday or today, there was a, you know, in Dubai, I think they're going, there's a, I think it was somewhere in the East where there's a, a new concentrated solar plant PPA for like nine or nine and a half cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, there's a new one in Chile and there's one in Nevada that's a concentrated solar power with storage. So it's come come a long way since Ivanpah. So, and it's not, those are not using natural gas. The, and you know so I don't Ivan not a good example no
1: i'm just using Ivan as like it was a flagship csp project still the economics of of csp to me seem challenged and but you know again like it it does seem possible to me it seems like a tool you should have in the toolbox i i totally understand and agree with that it just seems ambitious and risky to restrict yourself and i i also totally agree with you that you know the the aggressiveness with which this must be undertaken if we are serious about hitting a two degree climate target or anything like that means you can't wait around for technologies that aren't here. I guess my question, maybe this will draw it all back to sort of the policy end of this. So then, you know, the the way that this plays out in a policy venue is um, many different ways depending on what you're talking about. But one example, which has made the news some in California and some other places, is like, all right, let's set a target, and what should be incorporated within that target should be at a, should it be 100% uh, renewables that includes nuclear, excludes nuclear. Could CCS count? Could it not count? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And uh, I guess my question is like, what is what is your opposition to the idea that you set that target with as wide an array as possible of technologies that can compete? And then to the extent that there's a market, let the market decide what wins.
2: You're narrowing your criteria to just reducing carbon. Our criteria are much broader than that, that we want to eliminate air pollution. We want to provide energy security we want to minimize land use. We want to minimize other environmental degradation. So let's take carbon capture as an example. And this is all evaluated in this 2009 paper. And I wish this would this makes a big difference into how we think and maybe people would understand what we're trying to accomplish more by looking at that 2009 paper. The if you call with carbon capture, all, okay, you have a you have a smokestack, and you're basically taking the emissions from that smokestack and uh, in theory, taking about 85 to 90% of the emissions and piping it underground. Okay, it sounds great in principle but of carbon dioxide emissions. But you're not actually – first of all, it takes energy to run for, for the carbon capture equipment. And that energy is about 25% of the energy uh, to run for the electricity you're generating from the coal. So you actually need 25% more coal to run carbon capture equipment in the case of coal or carbon capture. So therefore, and you're not eliminating any of the energy in the mining or the transport of coal. In fact, those go up 25%. So you actually have 25% more mountaintop removal, 25% more land degradation, 25% more, you know, train train runs or whatever is transporting. And 25% more air pollution associated with, and carbon emissions associated with the mining and transport, which are about a third of all the coal power plant emissions is, is mining and transport and then you're not capturing all the carbon. And so, in fact, you still have, at the end of the day, even after you've captured all this carbon from the smokestack, and then there's potential leakage from what goes underground, and that leakage varies depending on your site, but even ignoring that, you still have 50 times more carbon per unit energy than wind power, accounting for the emissions from the mining, the transport, and the the remaining stack emissions. Plus, you do not increase decrease any of the other pollutants aside from carbon dioxide all those increase twenty five percent so you really have more air pollution mortality from coal and you just have less carbon dioxide so that does not in any way address our issue of air pollution in particular which goes up under coal with carbon capture and it doesn't it's an opportunity cost when you compare it with wind and so it just makes it it just beguiles me why people are promoting carbon coal with carbon capture. It makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever.
1: Sure. I'm by no means a big advocate for carbon capture. I actually think the point that you're making here is, is an important distinction that I wasn't entirely clear on. And it's definitely a big distinction between a lot of the studies that I've read that are the high penetration renewables scenarios, even if those are just looking at the electricity sector versus what you've been doing, which is that a lot of those are optimizing for, either they're optimizing for greenhouse gas emission reduction, or they're just saying, you know, what does it take to, to build a reliable system with X percent penetration? No, that's exactly what they're doing.
2: They're either minimizing carbon or minimizing cost, but they're not looking, they're not looking at the cost of air pollution at all.
1: Right. But if you were, I mean, it's an interesting question then, if you were just saying, forget, forget all the other side effects, like you could, you know, in a, you could imagine a target that set a a goal of hundred percent. Uh, clean energy and included CCS. Not that I want to be the guy who's like defending CCS a whole lot, but you could have that, and then you could set restrictions on um, life cycle emissions, or you could, you know, require offsets or something like that. Like that could be a thing that's incorporated into policy one way or another. But I think back to our point at hand about what are we, what what's plausible and what should be uh, designed into policy. It, it is an interesting question of as we're designing this, are we saying what we're going after is we are mitigating climate change or is it we're mitigating climate change while trying to co-optimize for, you know, local air pollution, environmental effects, uh, you know, local economic effects, like, you know, you could name any number of additional factors.
2: Yeah. Well, that's for each researcher. They have to decide that, but our, we've been clear from the beginning, we are trying to address air pollution which 4 to 7 million people die every year from air pollution worldwide, including 65,000 in the US. Global warming and energy security, it's trying to minimize land use and other environmental impacts. I mean, we're in that 2009 paper, we were looking at trying to minimize or write 12 or 13 different impacts simultaneously to get the what we think is the the best solution in terms of health, the environment, and the world around us. You know, and, and this is really the difference between a lot of this our studies and a lot of these other studies, <clears throat> which are looking primarily at just carbon.
0: Well, that, that brings me, I think, to the policy implications. And i got to ask you this question because I think a lot of the debate emanates from intention, or the debate revolves around your intention. Is this meant to be a blueprint for policymakers, or is this an aspirational document? What exactly are we talking about here?
2: Well, we realize that the end result will not look like what we propose. We're, it's, a, it's, an, it's both an aspirational document and a blueprint in the sense that the blueprint part is we would like countries and states and cities to adopt a goal of 100% clean renewable energy um, by no later than 2050 with 80% by 2030 be, based on what we think is the science behind this that is, it's not only necessary, but it's possible. So the, the blueprint part is just the, is really the end goals. And, but the actual, uh, details of how the system will work out is going to, you know, it's not going to work out exactly like we're proposing at all. I mean, it might not even be remotely the same, but, you know, I think it'll be in terms of the amount of proportion of wind and solar, it'd probably be reasonably close, but, um, yeah, so there's, because we realize it's going to change. So it's just, we're just saying this, this is, it's possible. Here's one way to do it. We think there are multiple ways to do it. So we don't want people just relying this way, but this is at least one way. And so that gives people confidence that they can go forward. And, you know, as you get closer to hundred percent, you'll sort out the remaining details. But, you know, in Germany, in fact, I saw a talk yesterday by somebody who works in, in Germany who, and they looked at, you know, the number of outages, because Germany has now 35% renewables on the grid. And, you know, utilities, like two decades ago, they kept there, or a decade ago even, they are saying it's impossible to get more than 20% of renewables on the grid without instability. I mean, so now the, the, we think that we have shifted this discussion. So it's no longer whether we can get 20% of renewables on the grid. It's whether we can get 80 to 100% of renewables on the grid. And that's a big shift. But in, in Germany, you know, they this there's the utilities were saying the same thing, you know, all these renewables are gonna cause blackouts. But in fact he showed data that the blackouts, even though the, the renewables has gone up steadily, now it's at around thirty five percent, the blackouts have been the number of hours of blackouts have been cut in half. In the meantime, right. in, in Germany, and
0: there's a lot we could say about that because there are, you know, d- major factors that contribute to the lower outage record in Europe compared to the U.S. Mostly because they're not as vulnerable to extreme weather and they bury their lines. But we can say that the presence of a lot of renewable energy doesn't cause more blackouts. Um, well, what, but, you know, no, the, what
2: he said, yeah, what he said. Just if I can finish this, is that it was because even though there were challenges putting all this renewables is that the grid operators adopted, ad, adapted to the situation. They just developed the necessary technologies to get the voltage regulation right. And so it was really a question of, as you, as you actually force the system to higher percentages, the grid operators figure out how to solve the problem. Right.
0: Yes, and, and grid operators in the U.S. have said the same thing. I mean, down in the southeast uh where they're starting to get 20% and over 20% wind uh you know during the nighttime hours grid operators there have said this is just the floor i mean we can get a lot more and you know of course in california and in pjm and other places they've said the same thing um i, I do i'm i'm a little bit confused as to what you're saying i just want to clarify here so what i'm hearing in this interview is that this is one pathway you believe it works, but it's not necessarily a set target for policymakers, they can work within this framework and sort of decide what mix of technologies and how exactly you get to this. Um, I have seen you tweet out in different forms that, you know, 100% wind, water, solar is the only moral choice. And so that implies that, you know, other choices are perhaps immoral. And I'm wondering if you can reconcile those two things for me.
2: Well, I should point out that, that particular tweet is not my tweet. I just retweeted that just to be clear. The, well, first of all, I should point out that, you know, our goal of a hundred percent by 2050, but at least 100. I mean, I think you can get a hundred percent by 2040 or 2045 in some places, but at least 80% by 2030 is a, is a goal that I think definitely needs to be adopted in policy. And i strongly, and that's based on the science of what we've done. As you pointed out, I don't, I don't, prescribed that we need to do exactly or, or proposed, you know, every single technology that we propose. Uh, for example, ut- underground thermal energy storage, we don't need as much as we propose. You know, I just couldn't run every scenario with different amounts because I mean you could use heat pumps. I mean, in my own home, I have heat pumps. I have no gas in my home. It's all running electricity. I export right now. I'm exporting 80% of my electricity back to the grid, even though I have electric cars, everything. Then I have heat pumps. So I don't need underground thermal energy storage. No, so just you know, just it runs on electricity. So that's a, you know you could instead of having UT. underground thermal energy storage, you could have more electricity running heat pumps. So instead of having hydroelectric power dams, you could have more batteries or CSP. The, yeah, the point I want to make is there's a variety of ways to get there. There's not only one way. And all the point of our 2015 paper was, here was one pathway. It's not necessarily the best pathway. It's not the only pathway. it's just one pathway and I'm just that's why I'm a little shocked at how much criticism this one group had over one pathway they tried to pretend as if we're saying that's the only way to do it and then you know went out of their way to really just go to try to criticize it to death with a you know clear intention to kill the idea and when there are multiple pathways and you know this should, this should be a collaborative effort we should all be working together to Solve this problem, and then if they have competing ideas, if they have ideas that they want to use more nuclear or coal or carbon capture, biofuels, fine. Let them put those out. But the, you know, it was uh, you know, my feeling is, that, you know, they just weren't getting enough attention for their ideas, so they decided they had to try to crush our idea. And I don't think that's a that's the way to do it.
0: And and so, isn't this how you know academic? And and peer reviewed research is supposed to work, though, where people come on and critique, and it seems to me a very normal part of the process. And I will say that, um, you know, uh, having talked to a number of the folks and and knowing some of the folks who have been critical of your paper, um, and hearing them talk about the criticism, they don't come across to me as personally attacking to you. They are generally thoughtful people they believe there are multiple pathways certainly they're concerned about locking in certain technology pathways i think that's probably where a lot of it emanates from but to me from an outsider looking in who's just generally curious about how the heck we achieve the climate targets that we actually need to achieve with no technology skin in the game um it seems like a pretty healthy debate that is now gotten personal
2: okay the this the paper that was written on our paper is not normal in any way, shape, or form. Why not? It is completely abnormal way to, to criticize a paper.
0: So what, what what is the normal way, and why is this different? The procedures,
2: normally, if somebody wants to criticize another paper, they would write what's called, like in the case of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, they would write what's called a letter to the editor that we would then respond to. The letter, in fact, in the... For PNEs description. They describe a letter as if you have criticisms of a paper, you're supposed to write a letter to the editor, and that will get that could get published after some review, and then the authors can respond. They did not write a letter. They wrote an what's called an article, or a research article, a research report, and that article then is not normal. You can look through PNEs or any other journal, and you will not find uh, a research article written on other papers. Just their whole purpose is to criticize that other paper. They're all in the letter section. So they somehow were able to get a research article. And the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences also has a requirement that all authors must materially sig- uh, contribute significant research to be included as an author on the paper. Uh, this group admittedly only had three out of 21 authors who actually did research on the paper. It says write in their paper... So they managed to push by 18 authors to pile on authors to increase the credibility of the paper, which is not normal, and it's not even uh, allowed in in the PNAS policy. And so they not only got an article published out of it, but they had 21 authors. This allowed them to then submit um, a news release. In fact, both uh, Ken Caldera's uh, organization, the Carnegie Institute, and one of the other authors' organizations submitted news releases that then allowed them to garner, because it was a research article, not a letter, to garner significantly more attention in the press. So there are, there are two major irregularities in the, the paper. You cannot you can look through the literature, the scientific literature, and you will not find uh, full paper, research papers, that are supposed to be for scientific research. There's zero new scientific research in this paper. It's just a criticism of our paper. So is that, that why you feel attacked? Section. Yeah, that's, well, the fact that this was, a, yeah, the. Well, it was, it was even more significant than that. The main criticism that anybody's talking about in their paper is that that we made two model errors. And one of them, and th- this these claims were absolutely wrong. We did not make any model errors. In one of the cases, they claimed that our hydro assumption that we, where we increased the, the discharge rate of the hydro without changing annual energy output was a modeling error. This, uh, the main author in particular kept vehemently saying, even after the fact, this was a modeling error, this just proves that his whole model is, is wrong and it's there's an error in it. Now, he was informed in February 2016 in writing, and he responded to it, so he got this, that our increase of the discharge rate was an assumption we made. It was not a modeling error. It was an assumption we made that was very explicit that we, didn't, we did not include that, we did not state clearly in the article itself what that assumption was, but I clarified to the, him after the article was published in writing what this assumption was. Despite this, he refused to include that information in the paper. And in fact, he went so far as to state in the paper um, I wonder, you know, there, I hope there's some other explanation for this, even though he had an explanation. So he intentionally, the first author intentionally omitted information that we provided him about an assumption, then claiming there was an error. He then claimed another error. He just made something up out of thin air that there was another error because it was like saying that some number was a, a maximum number when it was an average number. And so he then published, he got his paper published based on the claim that was then spread out throughout the media and the New York Times and all the media outlets that we made modeling errors when there was not a single modeling error in this paper. This is what annoys me because that is my profession. I'm a modeler, right? That's what I do. And I know when I make an error or not. And he was made, falsely claiming that we made an error and he refused to retract that claim, and he still published in that paper. So on top of the problems with the actual submission of the paper, violating PNAS policies, that you know, then he's also claiming we made errors, and then he's refusing to uh, acknowledge you know, our explanation that was clearly made to him, even going so far as to claim, uh, you know, I hope there's another explanation, when he had another explanation in his hand but refused to publish it.
0: So where do you go from this debate in terms of your modeling, your reaction to this debate, and the sort of the the influence on the the broader discourse?
2: Well, you know, fortunately, very few people are uh, affected by you know this paper that came out, and and so you know our goal is just to continue doing what we're doing, and to that end, we have 139. Uh, country paper uh, roadmaps coming out very soon. And we also are finalizing grid integration studies for 20 world regions, encompassing all 139 countries. And we're working on city plans, developing plans for individual cities. There are in the United States about 35 cities that have committed to 100% clean renewable energy. There are now 100 companies uh, that have committed to 100% clean renewable energy. Uh, around the world, in fact, in that case. And, you know, we're our goal is to develop the science behind, uh, you know, we want to try to solve these problems. My whole career, that's my goal, is to try to solve air pollution and climate problems and use scientific and engineering tools uh, to do this. So that's what I'll continue to do to try to address the problems of air pollution, climate change, and energy security.
0: Professor Jacobson, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you coming on the show.
2: All right, Thank you for having me on the show. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to Wonder Capital for sponsoring the show. Uh, If you want to help more listeners find this podcast, give us a rating and review in the iTunes podcast store. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts. Send uh, a link of this to your friends and colleagues as well. And uh, we'll catch you next week. Shail Khan, good conversation this week. Yep, thanks, Stephen. Thank you,
1: Professor Jacobson.
0: I'm Stephen Lacey with Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Greentech Media.